Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we're going to be talking about a subject that is of great interest to myself, and that is ancient concepts of omniscience. When modern Christians think of the idea of omniscience, they usually look at it and define it through a modern lens, a lens that's been developed throughout time within the light of Platonism. But here's the thing. Throughout history, this Platonic notion of omniscience has not been standard, not not in Jewish history and not in world history. When you survey mythology from around the world, including in the Hebrew Bible, and when I use the word myth, I'm using the technical scholarly definition, not referring to stories which are false, but primarily to refer to stories which explain how people view the world. So mythology. So try to divorce that from your mind from fake stories or from legends. Mythology, it's a technical term. But when you view mythology from around the world, including the Hebrew Bible, you're not going to see this type of omniscience that is described in Platonic literature. Instead, you're going to find a very different idea of omniscience. And there's various deities in various mythos which do possess omniscience. And this is the funny thing, and we even see hints of this in the Bible, that Yahweh is competing in the Bible with these false gods for claims of deity, and one of them is these claims of omniscience. Who has the more omniscient God? What can God see? When can he see it? And the atheists in Israel were the ones claiming, God cannot see what I do. Which, of course, prompts the question for anyone who wants to be serious about the Bible, what sort of ideas of omniscience were floating around in that society to warrant people who reject Yahweh as God to believe he exists or believe he doesn't exist and then claim that God cannot see what they do? For example, you wouldn't hear that from people in today's world where the Calvinist is saying God has this inherent knowledge of everything going on deep and wide and at the bottom of the ocean on on Mars, on Pluto, light years away, God has it all and he knows it all because his omniscience is one in which all knowledge is properly his. Was that an ancient concept? Did that concept exist in ancient Judaism, in ancient Israel? And in what way do the prophets respond to the critics? Is it anywhere similar to how a modern evangelical would respond to a critic of omniscience? The Bible is very telling if you just let it inform us of what the worldview of the authors was without bringing our own assumptions onto it. I'm going to start this podcast reading a quote by Boyd talking about how Platonic omniscience works, how it originated. And Boyd's very interesting here because you don't hear him talk too much about this subject, but when he does talk about it, he's right on. Boyd writes, First, Plato argued that we see not light entering our eyes, as we now know is the case, but by light proceeding out of our eyes, Timaeus 45b. For Plato, seeing is an active, not a passive process. Since knowledge was considered to be a kind of seeing, Plato also construed knowing as acting on something rather than being acted upon. Sophus 248 through 49. I've discovered that this mistaken view of seeing and knowing is picked up and defended by a host of Hellenistic philosophers. The key phrase to pull from that quote by Boyd is 
For Plato, seeing is an active, not a passive process. Remember in Platonism, God is supposed to be pure actuality. God cannot relate to anything else. God cannot be acted upon. God cannot be affected by his creation. So in Platonic theology, Platonic philosophy, for God to acquire information through sight, that's not allowed. You can't have God being acted upon or being the passive recipient of knowledge. The knowledge has to be active. The knowledge has to be inherent in God. A quick rundown of Platonism. Remember, God is at the highest level, and God is pure actuality. He's in the realm of the one, and under that is the realm of the intellect, where the perfect ideal forms dwell. And the material world is the world of the soul, and that's the lowest level of existence. And so all knowledge has its counterpart in the realm of the ideal. And so God has direct access to this knowledge, this perfect, these perfect ideas in the ideal, and that's an unchanging ideal. And knowledge to Platonism is this repository of facts, these perfect caricatures of what we experience in the descended soul of an earth. So knowledge is almost reality. You're right, in Platonism, it's not, they're not just abstract concepts that don't exist on their own, and they're actual things that could be known. And there's no changing these ideal facts. So when William Lane Craig was being interviewed, I just watched an interview lately with him, I'll have to pull up the exact reference, but he was asked about experiential knowledge. Experiential knowledge. Knowledge that we gain through experience. I know what it's like to be Chris Fisher. No one else knows uniquely what it's like to be Chris Fisher. God does not know what it's like to be utterly sinful and without hope, without redemption, and being powerless. Because to utterly know and experience that, you'd have to be in that position. So God doesn't have that experiential, experiential type of knowledge that I have. And William Lane Craig said, yeah, of course God doesn't have that type of knowledge. What he cares about is he cares about this intellectual knowledge this realm of the facts that's not experiential. There's an entire level and an entire class of knowledge that these people who claim that God has all knowledge, that they deny him because these people are Platonists and they care more about getting God in tune with the realm of the ideal rather than with the reality of what's described in the Bible. Remember, the soulish world is the lowest level of existence. And so the kind of relationships that are found in this changeable, mutable soul world cannot be ascribed to the highest being, to the one that is God, not in Platonism. So let's turn to the most popular modern systematic theology textbook by Wayne Grudem. And he writes, Our definition of God's knowledge speaks of God knowing everything in one simple act. Here again, the word simple is used in the sense of not divided into parts. This means that God is always fully aware of everything. If he should wish to tell us the number of grains on the sand of the seashore or the number of stars in the sky, he would not have to count them all quickly like some kind of giant computer, nor would he have to call the number to mind because it was something he had not thought about for a time. 
Rather, he always knows all things at once. All these facts and all other things that he knows are always fully present in his consciousness. He does not have to reason to conclusions or ponder carefully before he enters, for he knows the end from the beginning, and he never learns anything and never forgets anything. Isn't that incredible? He just, he just, that's not the Jewish Hebrew idea that we find in the Bible where God does consider things. God does hold counsel sessions in which he asks for advice, where God does reason, and God's reasoning skills are referred to a lot. And it's really funny that these reasoning skills are referred to a lot in these proof texts that these negative theologians, such as Grudem, and they use those proof texts as proof texts for omniscience, where it's all actually about God's processing skills, how, how well God can decide things based on evidence. So that's that's just funny. These guys they don't they don't care about the Bible. They just make stuff up as they go along, and they believe it too without evidence. And their evidence is so shoddy. But take note of Gruden's definitions, and his definition is God has all ideas at the forefront of His mind at all times. Is that a, is that a biblical idea, or does God forget people's sins, or does God recall that Noah? is on the ark and it says God remembered Noah and then he made the floodwaters recede. Is that common language within the Old Testament and why should we bring Grudem's reading to that text rather than taking it at face value? Like also the wickedness of Sodom comes to God, the cries of the enslaved Israelites comes to God, the wickedness of Nineveh comes to God. These phrases we see commonplace in the Bible, and it's not, this is not Platonic ideas that are being expressed in the Hebrew writers. Notice also Grudem's appeal to God's simplicity, that God is without parts, that nothing can be in relation to God. He is eternally simple and pure actuality, and nothing can be compared to God in any absolute sense. He's infinite and unknowable and incomprehensible and incommunicable. So likewise, the knowledge that God has cannot be dependent on creation in any manner. So that's the Platonic idea of omniscience. It's made its way into the modern church. And that's what people think about when they think about omniscience. God knows all facts. All facts are eternally at the front of his mind. And the scholars will say, well, well, not all facts, not the facts relating to experiential, experiential type of knowledge. And then they'll accuse open theists of believing that God doesn't have all knowledge, where they deny entire categories of knowledge to God and still claim omniscience. Yeah, who's the one redefining, dude? And real quick, when I say scholars in this context, I'm not talking about biblical scholars. I'm talking about scholars of metaphysics, the Wayne Grudems of the world. I recently came across a book, and this book is called The All-Knowing God by Petazzoni. And how I do research, how I do studying, is I go off on a lot of rabbit trails. So if I find an interesting statement in one book, I'll turn to the source, and then I'll Google that source. I'll try to find my way to that source and see what they're referencing. And then I'll be brought on different paths, just trying to research. And in my research, my rabbit trails, my rabbit trail from Ezekiel in Context, which is a good book, I came to this Petazzoni, the all-knowing God. 
This is a book that was written in the 1970s, and it's a very rare book. I had to buy a copy online because there's no digital versions that exist. It seems to be out of print, and so the only place you could get it is online for very expensive. But this book is very critical because what it is about, it's about the all-knowing God. And it goes over various ideas of omniscience in various cultures around the world. And it doesn't just focus on the Hebrew God, Yahweh, in the Bible. It focuses on other gods. And I'm just going to list off a bunch of uh, these gods and these different mythologies who are said to be omniscient. And you're probably going to recognize some of these names. In Egypt, there was Ray, Thot, Horus, Amund. In Babylonia, you had Anu, Enlil, Ea, Sin, Samosk, Marduk. Marduk is uh, fairly well known. In Greece, there's Zeus, Argos, Helios, Selene. Rome had Jupiter. Janus, of course, the two-faced god. Probably the most familiar god to modern audiences is Zeus. So Zeus is a good example just to stress reading comprehension to people like Calvinists. you know. And in Hesod, Hesod writes of Zeus. The eye of Zeus, which sees all and understands all, beholds these things also. If he will, and fails not to note what matter of justice this is also which the city contains within it. So notice the phrasing here. The eye of Zeus sees all, understands all, beholds these things. Pretend this statement was attributed to Yahweh. People like Wayne Grudem would take this as platonic omniscience. Would Wayne Grudem look at this phrase and ascribe platonic omniscience to Zeus? Why the double standard? Why the double standard? It's not hard to figure out that these people aren't real biblical scholars. Next, I'm going to read a statement about Zeus again from Archilochos. I don't know if I pronounced that right. He writes, O Zeus, Father Zeus, thine is the power over heaven. Thou seest the work of men, both wicked and lawful. The forwardness and the justice of beasts are your concern. These statements of omniscience attributed to Zeus how did the ancient Greeks view omniscience? Was it in this Platonic perfection sense, the type that's argued by Grudem? Or is it in a different sense? I believe if you ask anyone who knows anything about Zeus, about the mythology surrounding Zeus, his actions, his deeds, you know, he'd often like turn into a form of an animal and have like sex with women. And he would spawn children, and then there were disputes among the gods in their pantheon, in the Greek pantheon, people who know Zeus and the mythology surrounding Zeus would understand that these statements of omniscience are not absolute. So when Sophocles writes, Be Zeus my witness, who sees all things. Great still in heaven is Zeus, who sees and governs all. When Sophocles writes that, he's not claiming that Zeus has all knowledge of every minute event ever to happen on earth. Rather, he's proclaiming a general surveillance. And what type of surveillance? Is it active or is it passive? The idea that's very common in these early cultures is a passive observance. God is in heaven and he looks down and sees what men are doing. And omniscience, if you read through this book and if you read about these various deities, Often, omniscience is ascribed to aerial gods, gods that are in the air, that are everywhere where there's air, or, or sun gods, 
gods that are represented by light and everywhere where light touches that knowledge is given to that god or the moon or the stars the stars are often called eyes that which are looking down on men so these types of gods gain their omniscience through observing creatures and not everywhere not at the bottom of the ocean not in the center of the earth but everywhere the air touches that's where their omniscience extends to which brings us to the book of job and one of job's friends he says to job job you're like one of these heathens who believes not in heathens you're like one of these immoral men who thinks that yahweh when he's looking at us his vision is blocked by clouds Granted, we need to take Job's friend's theology with a grain of salt. That's not what we're considering here. We're considering ancient ideas of omniscience. And in the time of Job, people's idea of omniscience was that God is in the heavens and looks down on earth and sees what's going on. And the impious people claimed that on cloudy days, God could not see them act. And the friends are saying, God could see you even through the clouds. And you're like one of these people claiming that you have the sin that you don't actually have because you did it in secret. But guess what? God still saw your sin. And we see a very similar idea in Ezekiel. Ezekiel is declaring against Jerusalem. And Jerusalem has people who they go into these secret hills. They go into these secret rooms. And they sacrifice to false gods in secret. Because they believe that God's omniscience only extends to the daylight to where God could see them from heaven, and they believed they could hide themselves in these hidden places. Think also to Psalms 139. Often I have believed that this is a polemic against these false gods, against these ideas where God cannot see through the dark. King David says, even in the dark, you see me. He's not pulling this concept out of nowhere. People actually believe this about gods and about Yahweh, that Yahweh could not see in the dark. And what you find in the Bible is not these, these defenses of God that rely on negative theology, on perfect being theology. How easy would it have been for Ezekiel to say, God is perfect in knowledge. His knowledge doesn't change. He's pure simplicity. Therefore, there's no knowledge that you can ever gain. And don't even bother hiding because that knowledge is already known to God. That is not the counter-argument. Because no one in the Bible were Platonists. They did not think like Platonists. They did not act or respond to arguments like Platonists. They responded like good, pious Israelites. God could see you, even in the dark places, even where you go to hide. Now let's hear from Petazzoni. He writes, there is a divergence, a difference of less or more between what is postulated and what the data furnish. And all the efforts of anthropological arguments to explain this difference as a result of secondary degeneration or obscuration of the ideal presuppose the existence from the beginning of what has not take shape until later times under particular historical circumstances. He's saying that all these attempts by people like Calvinists, who claimed that the Old Testament writers had in mind their Calvinistic ideas of omniscience and omnipresence or whatever. The Calvinist then says that the Old Testament was written to condescend to men, right? That it's written in baby talk to men, like Calvin uses those words. He's saying that that's entirely speculative and that's not what the data shows us. We look at the data, we look at about how the Old Testament writers in particular wrote about Yahweh 
And it's, it's very evident that they did not believe these things that newer writers are trying to attribute to them. God is in heaven throughout the Old Testament. When people pray, they turn their face towards heaven, right? And it says God watches from heaven. How many times does it say that? And people then spiritualize this and say, well, God's just outside of space and time. He's in eternity and he doesn't watch from heaven as much as he just knows everything inherently through his attribute of being immutable and perfectly simple and omniscient. That is not what the biblical writers write about. They write about this act of observation. And in this book, Petazzoni points this out that primarily within these ancient religions, omniscience was a function of visual surveillance. Sure, there's some magical knowledge. Magical knowledge is usually found in human beings. So like there's diviners, there's people who have dreams. Like he uses examples of Indian cultures where people get fed information through dreams, through some magical, mystical way. But that's not the way that gods in ancient mythology gain their information like the air gods they were present everywhere things were happening and gaining this data like the sky gods they were visually watching what's happening and getting ocular knowledge ocular knowledge they they see with their eyes and they process and retain this information and that way they know and see everything so then you get these ideas in ancient cultures that sometimes in the dark or on cloudy days that the gods could not see what you're doing. So some people, they made sure that all their oaths were during the day because at night their oath would mean no good because it wouldn't be enforced by the sky god who only sees in the light. Animals also who fly in the air are also given properties of omniscience. These birds who fly high in the sky and look down on man, they are sometimes attributed omniscience. But in none of these cases, in none of these cases, is it Platonic omniscience, this pure actuality, this unchanging fact without consideration of experiential or experiential knowledge. Petizzoni writes, This magical or ocular knowledge has but a secondary and complementary interest in our inquiry. He's talking about the omniscience or the type of knowledge given to man. Alongside of it, there is another kind of omniscience, which we may call visual, in so much as it's based essentially on power of sight and knowing which comes from seeing. He goes on to say, divine omniscience, which is the proper object of our present inquiry, is a visual omniscience. In all these cultures, all these cultures, you find very similar statements to what we find in the Bible. And it's all about this visual omniscience, seeing what's going on. Recall Proverbs 15.3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. And similar statements like that, wherever you go, God can see you and knows what you're doing. The omniscience in the Bible is no different than the omniscience that's thought of in these other cultures. None of these cultures had access to Platonic omniscience. They, it wasn't part of their theology they didn't reference it, they didn't understand it, and they did not incorporate it into their thoughts about God, especially Yahweh in the Bible. God knows because God sees. There's a feeding mechanism to God where God can gain knowledge. And this is not allowed in Platonism. That's why the Calvinists, they, they have epileptic fits every time they hear an open theist start to talk because in their theology, 
God cannot gain anything. God can't get something that he didn't always have because that violates his immutability and simplicity and pure actuality and all these Platonic ideas. But that's how the Bible's written, and it's written thoroughly like that. And they obfuscate this fact by just through equivocation, equivocating this entirely different category of omniscience and just pretending that that is their category of omniscience, which they define, like Wayne Grundem does. He doesn't prove from the Bible his definition of omniscience. He doesn't show how that differs from the omniscience that's attributed to other gods and other cultures with very similar phrases. He just assumes, assumes without any evidence and in opposition to all the data that we have, that his omniscience, his idea of omniscience is a true one, and that all other ideas should be discounted because he brings his theology onto the text rather than letting the text speak for itself. Real biblical scholars like Christine Hayes and David Kleins and even Bergerman, they they admit that the omniscience was not not omniscience in the Platonic sense is not a part of early Jewish thought. Here's Kleins, for example, writing about Job. And in Job, we find Yahweh, and he's sitting on his throne, and he's approached by the angels. And the angels, they bring God information, they report on their activities. And Kleins writes, and this is in the Word Biblical Commentary, The Yahweh of this tale is not the absolutely omniscient God of later systematic or speculative theology. He is wise beyond human comprehension, for his eyes and ears, like the spies of the Persian kings, are everywhere abroad, and report to him on days of assembly. But not even Yahweh knows what has not yet happened. His knowledge does not encompass all possible hypothetical situations. He has confidence in Job, but not confidence that would enable him to use Job as an object lesson to refute Satan's aspirations. He, too, has taken it for granted that he will bless the pious man. But the benign reciprocity has obscured the true relation of piety and prosperity. The Satan has a right to ask the question, and Yahweh is in the right in having the problem probed. The Job story just does not make sense in light of modern ideas of omniscience. You have God making bets or generally wagers with agents of court or Satan, depending on how you want to take that, about future events, about future occurrences, about what the future might bring. And people just gloss over this when they're reading Job. The entire setup, the entire scenario of why Job is suffering that explains why he's suffering, although he is righteous and not worthy of any suffering. That's not a Calvinistic concept either. They think that all people are worthy of suffering and death. (laughs) Not a biblical concept. Kleins goes on, The alternative to such a reading of the story is worse. Affirm that Yahweh is infinitely omniscient, and you assert that Job's suffering serves only to prove God right in the eyes of his subordinates. Affirm that Yahweh knows that Job will not waver, and you cannot explain why Yahweh takes the slightest notice of Satan's questions, or why he does not dismiss them out of hand from superior knowledge. The writer of Job does not have these Platonic ideas of omniscience in mind. He just doesn't. And when we turn to Genesis as well, we find the same thing. In Genesis 18, we see Yahweh wondering whether to bring Abraham into his divine counsel and get Abraham's advice about the actions that he's proposing on doing. And God says, Yahweh says, Because of the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, 
Notice that outcry, the outcry has come to God like it does in so many texts. I will go down now to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Notice this outcry, it comes to God. God is ingesting it, this information, this data through his senses. It's not this eternal, immutable knowledge. It's just not. And then God talks about the future. First of all, he doesn't have present knowledge about Sodom and Gomorrah, not in this text, at least. And so when open theists like Bob Enyart say that God can choose not to know even present knowledge, that is more compatible with the text than people saying that God has this inherent knowledge of all facts, always, in all circumstances, even the most minute detail on the far moon of Jupiter. It's not as compatible with the text as a view like Enyart's, where God can have selective knowledge if God so wants. So in this Genesis 18 text, God decides to go to Sodom and Gomorrah to verify reports that have come to him. Again, none of this is this platonic omniscience. I'm going to conclude this podcast with some parting thoughts. Number one, platonic omniscience versus visual omniscience. How does God have knowledge? How does God gain knowledge? How does he get information? Is this is it an immutable idea that's always at the forefront of God's mind as described in Grudem? Or is it some other way? Are there reports that comes to God as in Job and in Genesis? What type of omniscience does God have? What does the Bible say? And I'm not saying Grudem is wrong per se, but if he is right, he should be able to define and defend his definition of omniscience, not from speculative theology, not from Platonism, not from pure actuality, but from the Bible. Where in the Bible describes God's omniscience uh, as that of the Platonic variety rather than that of the very common theme, trend we see in multiple cultures throughout the world in which omniscience is of the visual sort, where God is in heaven or God is in the air and God is with all people because of his relationship to them and gains his knowledge that way. Which type of omniscience is described in the Bible? It would be a huge mistake just to assume your own definition of omniscience onto the Bible. It'd be a huge mistake to assume your definition of omnipresence or omnipotence or acidity or pure simplicity and then assume it onto the Bible, especially in these vague statements. Statements which are attributed to other gods and other cultures and other mythos and then not read in a consistent manner. I'm going to be doing a fuller review of the book The All-Knowing God on a later podcast, but i just like people to start thinking about the types of omniscience there are and the different variants that we experience throughout world history. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, feel free to put that on the God is Open webpage or start a thread on the Facebook companion page, God is Open. Thank you for listening. Thank you.